Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. everyone, my name is Emily Friedlander and you're listening to episode 7 of the Thump Podcast. Every week, we bring together a panel of Thump editors to discuss the people and stories shaping contemporary electronic music and nightlife. Today, we'll be spotlighting some of the ways in which industry metrics and digital algorithms shape our world. First up, we'll talk about a recent piece we published on a genre called Lo-Fi House and its rise to popularity on YouTube. Then we'll turn our attention to a recent deep dive we did into the Billboard EDM charts and the paradox whereby some of the most popular dance artists in the world right now are ones that few people, including ourselves, have ever heard of. We'll also talk about Musical.ly, a teenager-focused music video app and social network that is quietly incubating tomorrow's hits. Finally, we'll talk about Spotify Discover. Are computers better than humans at turning people on to new music? Do you want to all introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Ezra. I'm an associate editor at Thump. I'm Larry. I am the senior culture editor for Vice. I'm David, and I'm also the associate editor here at Thump. So what have you guys been listening to this week? This week... As I've been writing a piece that we're going to discuss later today about the Billboard EDM charts, I've just been listening nonstop to these kind of anonymous pop dance songs. And one in particular got it really stuck in my head. It's called By Your Side by Jonas Blue. I'm not going to say that this song is good. It's not good. But it's one of those things where it just sort of like got so deep into the part of your head that can't get songs out of that I was listening to it on repeat for like six hours the other day kind of accidentally I've been listening to especially running through a lot of uh, the essential mixes that have come out this year I think they've done a really good job curatorially this year the Helena Hoff essential mix is apparently especially very good kind of like a nice mix of like rougher techno stuff some acid in there I mean you know, Helena's like probably one of the best DJs in the world right now, and it's really great to see uh, the BBC and Pete Tong and whichever other wizards curate it, uh, kind of just uh, picking the right people and kind of the, digging a little deeper than the obvious choices for people to kind of like take part in what is like pretty much a time-honored tradition. Yeah, I think it's really cool how over the past couple of years their curation has changed mm, a lot. It's yeah. getting it's getting very deep. I'm into it. I've really been enjoying this new EP by Yeji. She is based here in New York, and she is originally from Seoul. 
She makes her own beats, but she also does vocals. I'd say her sound kind of is very aligned with the kind of hazy, deep sound, deep house stuff coming out of Brooklyn the last couple of years, Goucher Lust's work, DJ Richard, stuff like that. I think her vocals are really cool. They just kind of float along the groove she makes. It's very easygoing. It's great driving music, great hanging on the couch, smoking the blunt music. And at the right time of night, I think it could definitely make you dance too. So I'm excited to see what else she puts out. One song I wanted to spotlight, which is not a new song, is this track that Matt Trammell at The New Yorker wrote up this week on their website. It's a gospel disco track that you will be familiar with, David. Mm-hmm. It is a children's choir from Bed-Stuy from the 80s singing Stand on the World. Mm. That's um, how the good low works. Yeah. And it was so cool to see Matt using his platform at the New Yorker to write about this obscure gospel disco track that nobody even really knows its provenance. They know what the choir is, but it's unclear whether or not it was remixed by Larry Levon uh, or not. Um, And it was definitely like a big hit at Paradise Garage and like a staple. And the reason why it felt so cool to see Matt writing about it is also because we have a documentary coming out next week on this preacher from South Carolina named Jazz, who is basically a professional DJ along with his work in the church. He's an ordained minister. Yeah. He's like a community minister for a neighborhood in Charleston. But yeah, that song is the theme song of the video that we did, and I'm so excited about it. When we filmed that, he was here, and he threw one of his uh, Episco Disco parties in the crypt under that church in the East Village, whose name I am blanking on. But it was really funny watching him talk about that record to, like, a giant group of religious Christians who I don't think had ever heard really a lot of stuff like that before. I also saw last year when Red Bull did this big gospel house event at Output, they brought in a full choir that performed that song. And I have to say it was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life. There are few tracks with as much energy as that song, I think, ever created. Yeah, and I think it was really influential on a lot of musicians today, like Justice or Justice, who we profiled last (laughs) year. Their big hit, Dance, D-A-N-C-E, used a children's choir inspired by that move, and apparently it was also used to open a lot of LCD sound system shows recently. But yeah, what Matt says in his piece, which I thought was interesting, was, you know, it's so ironic that this song where the lyrics are basically saying, you must obey God at all costs, became the soundtrack for this partying and, and God debauchery. is a DJ. That's what they say. Yeah, and the documentary that we're releasing next week is specifically about this man who truly believes that the thing that we're looking for on the dance floor is the same thing that we're looking for when we go to church. Now, I was kind of confused when I first heard that you guys were working on a story on Lo-Fi House because... I've been listening to house music that is lo-fi and writing about it for quite some time. (laughs) So I was like, why is this an official genre name denoting something else? Are Uh, you sure it's just not your headphones? Maybe. David, do you want to explain musically what this is? 
as you could probably guess, lo-fi house, like low-fidelity house. I think it's an interesting thing where you see the name and you could take it as the quality of the music is poor, but it's really not that. It's more that it's kind of very filtered. Some artists, um, Mallgrab was an early person that kind of blew up out of that scene, and I've heard he runs some of his tracks and instruments through like a really shitty tape machine. It kind of gives it this subdued, hissy sound. It's very sample-heavy. You'll see a lot of the people making it throw in these hip-hop samples that are of big tracks you've probably heard of, but they're very edited and they're kind of pitched down and you can't really tell exactly what you're hearing, but I think it hits a familiar note with a lot of people. I've always found it just very like easy to listen to. It's probably not going to change your life or change the dance floor forever, but it's fun. And I think like with house and techno, a lot of times people forget it's about having fun and just listening to pleasurable music. Who are the prominent artists? I think Larry will probably talk about later that there have been people that have been making this sound for a long time since it was kind of repackaged in the last year or so. But a lot of the people now, there's this guy, Ross from Friends. Um, a lot of these people have very cheeky names that are based on, like, internet or pop culture stuff. There's DJ Boring. Mall Grab is another big guy doing stuff in that scene. He's from Australia this label Lobster Theremin, which is out of London, they've been doing a lot of lo-fi stuff on various sub-labels. A lot of these artists have a lot of different aliases, so a lot of it is the same people in the community making tracks, just under different names. Lobster Theremin kind of started out doing like grime stuff a yeah. few years ago, too, so yeah. it's kind of like weird that they're... Not yeah, weird, they have but... this distant Hawaii label, and they've been doing a lot of lo-fi stuff on there. It all sells out really fast on vinyl. A lot of it is vinyl-only releases. It's got a lot of buzz behind it. One thing I find funny about it is if you go on Discogs and you look at some of the records, you'll find people that are just like buying them because they're really hot, and they don't know that lo-fi music has this kind of shitty-sounding quality, and they think that their pressings are like distorted, and they're asking the labels for their money back. <laughs> So that's always funny. The names kind of hark back to me to other... DJ micro- Seinfeld is another one. Yeah, I mean, the, for me, I, uh, <laughs> I'm not too familiar with this music, but the names sort of hark back to other micro-genres that plagued my years starting out as a writer, like chill wave artists. Larry, how would you say that it compares to those other micro-genres? Yeah, I mean, it sounds very similar to me. It's really interesting because I think dance music, especially over the last 15 years, has been cyclical in terms of trends and sounds. You kind of had this, I think, around like 2009, 2010, when Not Not Fun spun off into 100% Silk. You had people calling that hypnagogic house or hipster house. And it was basically <laughs> kind of the, the same vibe, which is just like this very distant warm, a little hissy, but like ultimately inviting dance music. I mean, if you listen to dance music from especially kind of like older dance music from the 80s, like it didn't really sound very different from that. I think maybe the biggest change was that it was probably the first emergent underground dance trend since the collapse of Minimal in the late 2000s. So, I mean, to me, like, I've spent kind of this morning going through some of this lo-fi house stuff, and I think it sounds really pretty. It's really nice. I don't think there's a ton different from what these guys are doing and someone like Leon Vinehall, who's also working within a framework of traditional kind of classic house sounds and giving them a little bit of like a retro modern refit. But it does remind me of a lot of other different 
types of movements and that I think the one defining factor here is that 100% Silk was very much something that emerged out of cassette culture and small press labels, whereas this stuff to me, and maybe Lobster Theremin's a little removed from this, but this stuff is more digital. It has the tech angle, as they say online. Ezra, you helped work on this piece that we published by Rob Arcand. What is the specific relationship of Lo-Fi House to digital modes of discovery? I mean, the fact that we're talking about this music at all is deeply intertwined with the way that music actually reaches people's ears nowadays. This piece is called, Is Lo-Fi House the First Genre of the Algorithm Age? And the reason that I think that this conversation is happening is because the way that so many people found out about this music, at least these particular artists, Ross from Friends, DJ Boring, Mall Grab, is because if you're listening to electronic music on YouTube, chances are you're going to see one of these songs pop up on the right in the recommended tab, kind of like the YouTube Explore feed. I remember seeing the song Winona by DJ Boring more than a year ago and it would just like have this like absurd play count it was over a million and a half or something for this song that just purely as a listening experience wasn't that notable it was just sort of like so many other examples of lo-fi house that we've talked about so many other examples of just like retro modern sample based music but all these cultural ideas had been added to it just by the way that it was portrayed like there was this very retro hazy a visual aesthetic just of like the photo that was used for it and a lot of these other tracks or like sometimes will be set to videos that are just giving it this whole nostalgic kind of like the same way that Vaporwave plays with nostalgia but just applied to house music and I think that the reason that this is so effective from an algorithmic angle is something that Rob gets into in this piece where he talks about how YouTube's recommended algorithms rely on two neural nets and the first one is sort of like if you listen to a song, there'll be like a group of hundreds of recommended songs that YouTube will bring up that are vaguely related to that by genre and by what you've listened to it before. And then the second neural net is more specifically what you specifically have listened to, not just what other people have listened to. So it's basically like songs that fit into a lot of different genre categories or songs that a lot of different subcategories of people would want to listen to are given this jetpack boost on YouTube because so many different kinds of people would be likely to listen to them. And it's like the algorithm itself, just the way that that works, means that songs that are almost like a lowest common denominator of taste get this benefit. And so it's like this kind of music is at this like weird magical sweet spot between vaporwave kids who love nostalgia and like house heads who are following the other trend or just like these like various things where the music itself is kind of featureless almost like it doesn't have that much to define it sonically but just the way that it's presented and the various subcultures that are swirling around just kind of have this Venn diagram with this kind of music at the center. And that's so interesting to me because the other recent movements or micro-movements of music that were similar, like Larry mentioned 100% Silk, I guess another form of lo-fi house could also be like the Lies and L.A. Sound Resource yeah. thing. Like those <laughs> were Outsider to, House. Outsider house. Edwards comes to mind. Um, and then also like, you know... James Ferraro, pre-Farside Virtual, Um, that stuff was decidedly very fringe. And I can't imagine that stuff, or I couldn't have pictured, at least in the time, that kind of music 
having millions of plays. And like Larry was saying earlier, I mean, there's those kind of subgenres you just mentioned, but then if you look back to early Chicago House that they were making on really cheap synths, and I mean, that sparked all of this, and that's extremely lo-fi. And for me, on YouTube, I remember very clearly when I first started seeing these lo-fi tracks pop up and what I was listening to on YouTube was like old Detroit and Chicago house stuff that you could really only find at YouTube because people were ripping vinyl. And then I looked at my sidebar and these new tracks started popping up. So it's like whether you like Vaporwave or Chicago house or like Lies, they've pretty much found something that like anyone who likes gritty dance music is going to get down with. I remember about four or five years ago when trends were a little bit different, there were also songs like this that I would always, always see on the side of YouTube. I remember what that XXYYX song, whatever it was called, like Mm -hmm. back when like that kind of sound was really popular. Like that song perfectly nailed the intersection of a bunch of different things. And like the majestic casual stuff. Totally. Totally. It's it's, these things, these things are, are, I mean, it's simple. They're popular because they appeal to a lot of people. And YouTube is a great system for making popular things even more popular. It's funny because I think there's something here about where this is coming from and where this music lives, which is on YouTube. And I think YouTube has always been, or at least for the last seven or eight years or so, it's been a place where you go circa until maybe about several years ago. It was a place where, you know, I'd listen to a, a board set or something or like a mix and I'd hunt down the track ID if there was something that was really good that I heard and then I'd find it on YouTube and I'd play that YouTube like it was a record. I would listen to it over and over again. I'd keep a bookmark, you know, and that was never where the music was intended to live, but it was kind of as somebody who really wanted to hear the music, it was the best you could get until proper release or proper digital release or whatever. But with this stuff, it's on YouTube, and that's where it lives. Like, I've seen the Ross from Friends track pop up a thousand times, as everybody else in this room has on YouTube, and that's the only place I've really seen it exist. Like, I don't see it on Spotify. Like, I don't see it on any other streaming services. I don't see posters for it or, you know, snipes on Bedford or whatever. It's just on YouTube. It's interesting. It's that the medium is becoming a little more legitimate through this, I guess. And is the idea that these are maybe artists who are able to find a form of success and build a fan base without conventional industry support, probably? Like, do these people have managers and publicists? Do they play out? They do now. Yeah, I think thanks to everything they're talking about. Like, if you look at Ross from Friends, I mean, if you look at Mallgrab, his big breakout tune was called Can, and it was, like, super lo-fi. And now he's making tons of different genres. He's remixing major artists and a lot of these players are just kind of making normal house music now so I think that was their jump off board for sure so everyone initially used YouTube as this like nostalgia engine to listen to old stuff and eventually you had so many people on YouTube who love nostalgia that new nostalgia music came out of it Ezra, kind of building on this idea of artists that find their following on YouTube and that maybe are still sort of subcultural on a level or they're sort of niche, I want to talk to you about this piece you did on the Billboard Hot Dance electronic chart. I don't know about everyone else here, but I often have a strange experience when I log on to this chart because... Well, I know some of the artists on it. There's often a lot of people who are producing the biggest, most popular 
songs in the world right now as calculated by Billboard, and I haven't really heard of them, and I don't see any journalists covering them. That's weird for me because, you know, that's my job is to know who everyone is. So you went ahead and looked at some of these really popular songs by artists you'd never heard of before, and what did you find? Yeah, I mean, if you were to ask somebody who are the most famous electronic musicians, they'd give you names like Deadmau5, Skrillex, Kygo, Chainsmokers, and they'd be right. But would they give you a name like Bruno Martini? <laughs> How about Cash Cash or Zeba or Brian Justin Crum? It's pretty unlikely. But these are the kind of names you'll find on the Billboard Hot Dance Electronic Songs chart because these songs are pulling in streaming numbers that are almost unbelievable. You take a song like Jack Jones featuring Rye, You Don't Know Me, that has 100 million Spotify streams. I mean, that's more streams than like anyone in indie music has by a huge margin. And this guy is almost completely unknown. I mean, like you'd be really hard pressed to talk to somebody who knows a lot about music who could tell you anything about him. And it's because this music doesn't have anything to do with the traditional music conversation or hype or buzz in the traditional sense. It has to do with buzz in the algorithmic sense, which is almost a far more pure form of buzz where plays really beget more plays through Spotify's recommended songs playlist, the Discover playlist, and even, and most of all, the Spotify curated playlists that are just these constantly refreshing 50 or 60 song deep lists of pleasant music that's designed to be listened to in almost in the background. I mean, these, these things are called things like Dance Pop as a Spotify playlist with over a million followers, as is Fresh Electronic. And the music that's on them is this really specific formula that kind of follows from the success of the Chainsmokers and Kygo and Flume, where it's neither house and techno, nor is it like EDM. It's like a combination of the most pleasant sounds of pop music with a little bit of a dance music kick to it and then like a little bit of trap, some kind of pitch shifted hooks. Where Are You Now is the Justin Bieber Jack You song. Like the way that that song used vocal manipulation, I think was a great starting point for when this stuff really started to take over. Because now you'd be hard pressed to find anything that resembles the EDM of a few years ago on the Billboard EDM charts. It's just gone. Like that stuff has been left behind in favor of this kind of pleasant melodic pop stuff. And I think that has to do with two things, which is one, what people actually want this music for, which is not festivals per se. I mean, these artists play at festivals and they have fans who want to go see them in concert. But even more so, it's like people want this music to be in the background of their life. They want it in the background of stores. They want it in the background of movies. They want it in the background while they're jogging. They want it in the background while they're having sex. If it sounds good, it doesn't get in the way. It's not loud. It's not abrasive. It's just sort of pleasant. There's almost always a female top line vocal, sometimes a male top line vocal, and it's almost always like completely devoid of any kind of identifying marks. Like the vocal itself just sounds really anonymous. And this music, because it's so specific and because people don't want songs that are different from other songs, they just want songs to make up these like long mood playlists. There's a huge market for artists who don't need to have any kind of brand recognition to pull down crazy numbers just by making the kind of songs that will get picked up by the recognition algorithms that we were talking about and by Spotify's selected playlists. And that's having an effect downstream on where money's actually being made. And we see that reflected in the charts. So you have songs like Griffin and Elenium featuring Daya, Feel Good with 10 million Spotify plays. It just sounds like 
essentially a redux of a Chainsmokers song. I mean, they even reusing the same vocalist, Daya, from Chainsmokers 2016 hit Don't Let Me Down. And this will be a song that like a lot of people in the country are listening to without really needing to form any kind of attachment to the artist or needing to know anything about the artist because it doesn't have anything to do with the artist. It's everything to do with like, this is the song that I listen to while something else is happening. This is the song that helps me do my homework as opposed to like, I'm an Elenium fan. I'm a Dia fan. I mean, that's just not really how this music is used. And I think that's because people have a weaker attachment to music that you don't own. You, you don't need to have that attachment to music that you don't own. It's more like a utility. That's something I said in this piece is that this music is used in the same way as light or heat in creating a pleasant environment than it is like using a Velvet Underground song as a marker of your cultural identity because you're a fan of them and not this. It's like this music is meant to make you feel good while you do something else. What I always wonder in situations like this is whether the artists are cynically making music to the algorithm or if they themselves believe that this is their genuine self-expression. It's probably a little bit of both. I see what happens with overground dance trends, the same thing that I see in hip-hop, which is when you have something that's popular that is working, that connects, you usually have a few people who do something very similar right after them. That's kind of always been the wave with some strains of dance music, I think, in general. I mean, obviously, there are scenes and enclaves where it's like, okay, we're very much about individualism and doing things, but... And this is a result of the internet age, too. You know, Emily, you brought up Chill Wave earlier in passing, and a defining aspect of Chill Wave was how easy it was to replicate. It was very easy to take that sound that was established by few artists and had a lot of different reference points in pretty much every decade of popular music dating back to the 60s, it was very easy to replicate it because you had home recording and you had an increasing number of tools at your disposal to make this work. And that was in 2010. I was working at Pitchfork at the time and I was actually in charge of curating our tracks section and I would just get every day at least like 40 to 50 Chillwave songs have sounded exactly the same. Sometimes somebody would put out something and two weeks later I'd, I'd get something that sounded like something that was covering that song, <laughs> which is crazy when you think about it. I kind of scoffed at it at the time, but that seems quaint compared to how things go now. Like if, if you were able to do that that quickly in 2010, in 2017, it's like almost like instantaneous. On YouTube, you can go and hear a tutorial on how to make any of these sounds and you can pretty instantly mm. make a mock-up of like any song on the chart and there's something that the Chainsmokers actually talked about in their big billboard interview the kind of controversial one last year was where they talked about being the tech bros of dance music because they treat their music like the same way a tech company treats a product where you iterate it and market test it until you find the most efficient market tested variety of it and you can see that reflected in how much their music pops off on these new algorithmic ways of consuming music. It's interesting because maybe pop music has always been a sphere where people try to make music to popular taste. Mm. Um, But now the tools are just off the charts to the point where it's maybe more effective to get a song charting on a streaming service or hit some algorithmic eddy than to get your song on Pitchfork, for example, which used to be like 
everyone wanted to get their song on Pitchfork or other prominent websites as the key to exposure. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that the main difference between now and the past, I mean, it's not like copying pop music is a new idea at all, but that we've now created systems where you can completely bypass a single human gatekeeper. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree. I mean, I think these people are really playing the algorithms very clever. And if, if you look at some of these songs, I think the signs are there. I mean, the first one on here, Call On Me, I would not be surprised if that song was named that because of the Eric Pritz song. You probably have so many people searching Call On Me in Spotify trying to find the Eric Pritz song. Mm. You also see this Griffin song is literally called Feel Good. Shooting Stars, that blew up because of a meme. I mean, it's just people wanting something fun that is totally mindless. You look at the Jack Jones song, and to his credit, Jack Jones is pretty big in the UK, but very much connected to that like feel good disclosure house music, but he's sampling a very famous Bukashade song, which is just like the ultimate feel-good house Ibiza anthem. So like every song here seems to have some little aspect to it, whether it be the music or the name or like the sample that just fits into something that's very easy to listen to. And it's pretty crazy. It really is. I wrote an article last year for Vice magazine about Musical.ly, which is a little bit different. It's a teenager-focused video app and social network that is not a place where you can stream entire songs, but it's a place where you can kind of taste test songs. It's like, I think, 15-second snippets of songs. And basically the way it works is there's a bunch of songs that are on the app. I guess they're licensed to the app. And you can go in and make an original music video to the snippet of the song. And what ends up happening is certain users develop a following for their lip syncing performances and rise to the top of a chart with in this app, they become more and more famous, and then the people who follow them are, by proxy, listening to the songs. So alongside the app's chart for the most popular users, there's also a chart of the most popular songs on Musical.ly. And what's really interesting is those songs that were rising to the top of the chart often were predictors of Billboard success later on. So Musical.ly is this really powerful tool where record labels can almost start sort of seeding songs into this very, very young, very, very passionate demographic. There are 11 million video uploads per day from more than 120 million users worldwide, and 64% of the app's American users are within the 13 to 24 demographic. And I think about half of American teenagers are on this app. So that's a lot of power right there. Record labels will seed songs on this app, and it's this decontextualized bit of music. It's not the entire song, it's maybe a hook. Unknown artists who can isolate a hook that's really catchy can become viral stars 
because a lot of people grab onto the hook and then start making their own videos to promote the hook. So first of all, it's interesting because it sort of taps into the online phenomenon of people, fans marketing music for the artists. It's a little bit like Atlanta viral dance videos in that way, where it's people who are fans of a song picking up the song, performing something to it, and thereby making the song famous. But then it's also interesting because instead of directly being the place where you stream the music, it links outward to streaming sites. I think that the guy who I interviewed for it, Alex Hoffman, who is sort of heading up the North American branch of Musical.ly, he said something like, we don't take a piece of the pie, we make the pie bigger. Which means that if there is a song that is charting on Musical.ly, the artist's profile links out to their YouTube page, their Spotify page, and then they can start profiting off of it by making more money through those streaming services. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. (laughs) I think that's a great example of like the way that the world works now where music is not recommended to you by a person. It's really just like recommended to you by an algorithm which chooses it based on an extremely complex set of are essentially artificial intelligence neural networks to predict what you're going to want to listen to. And whether the, what effects that will have is, I think, something we'll see over the next three or four years. I mean, in this case, it is the artists or the labels behind them isolating a snippet within the song and choosing to present them to people and then to create a marketing campaign around that snippet. But yeah, it definitely can change what making music means again because it's about landing on that specific moment within a song and caring a lot about that moment. And it's also another example of music being used more as a utility than as an end goal to itself where you want to create a song that is fun to take a video of yourself singing along to rather than just listening to it on its own terms. It's a song that like helps enhance an experience. And I think in the future, as we're increasingly networked with music playing and listening devices, music is going to take on this increasingly background performance. Like our lives are a constant music video. Our lives are constantly like have music enhancing what we're doing less. So like we're just listening to it for whatever it has to offer, which is a huge change. And then the algorithms will become self-aware, like in the Terminator. <laughs> and the Spotify playlists will kill us all. Oh, God. It definitely doesn't <laughs> seem like it's good for our job security long term. I mean, at the same time, I can imagine a lay music listener being like, hey, I want to find out what I should be listening to. And these utilities help me find songs that I really like, even if that song is just for listening to while I'm jogging. The last thing I wanted to talk about today was Spotify Discover and services like it, which are specifically geared towards helping people connect with their next favorite song. Larry, are you a Spotify Discover user? I'm not. And it's funny because I've never really had the urge to listen to it because I have a lot of my own kind of inscrutable procedures and lists and 
playlists and all this other stuff in place to keep track of everything. So adding one more thing to me would kind of be like the last block on the Jenga pile. But it was interesting because, you know, every Christmas I make my fiance's three sisters for like the last six years or so. I've made them mixes uh, of like all my favorite music at the end of the year. And I try and keep it to stuff that they most likely have not heard a thousand times. For this year, for example, I kind of had like a no Drake or Kanye rule because like I'm sure they were had listened to plenty of it already. And the song this year that I put on it where I actually discovered it through Diplo's uh, year-end mix on his BBC show Diplo and Friends uh, was called Final Song by Mo. And I was like, I love this song. I put it on all three of the mixes and one of Not Mo, my- the jam band. No, not not Mo the Jam Band. Uh, like that. The, that seems odd. The Swedish singer of uh, Major Lazer's Lean On Fame. Oh yeah, yeah, M O. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, I read I read all this stuff on the internet. I don't pronounce it for a living. <laughs> um, but I you know I put this song on their mixes, and one of her sisters was like, "Oh yeah, I love this song. I actually heard this." on Spotify Discover about six months ago. And and I had listened to that song about, like, six weeks ago, like, uh, through a mix. (laughs) So it was kind of, like, remarkable to me that, like, it wasn't, I don't want to say remarkable. It was not remarkable that somebody heard music before I did. But (laughs) it was interesting to me that, like, we both kind of arrived at the same song through two different pathways and that in this case when I sometimes like click on Spotify discover by accident I'll, or something I'll be like okay like that looks about right for like you know considering my taste profile and algorithms and what the industry is trying to push around that time it, it all makes sense to me but it did connect somebody with a song that they really loved and I think beyond like the skepticism which I think is healthy around this stuff it does serve a purpose for people for like for people who just want to hear music and you know kind of take the guesswork out of finding it. How does it select the songs? Do you guys know? Oh man I have no idea. Is it like a secret algorithm? I don't think that the information is available but most likely it's something similar to what Rob described in the YouTube recommended algorithm where it's a series of neural networks that try to pattern your taste through just like a bunch of complex ways of like what you've listened to before and what other people with similar tastes you've listened to before. I tend to use Spotify less for work-related listening and more for kind of personal listening. Like my work-related listening often revolves around, you know, dance electronic promos that are sent to me. So when I saw Father John Misty on late night TV and really liked the song that he played, I used it to listen to that song. And sure enough, when I checked Spotify Discovered this morning ahead of this chat, the first song that came up was an artist from... I think the 70s, who sounded exactly like Father John Misty. And I don't even know if it's based only on what I search in Spotify or if it's connected to like what I search on other streaming apps Mm. or on YouTube. And yeah, it is kind of accurate to my tastes. There may even be some sort of like chord structure thing where if I tend to like songs with a certain kind of chord structure, then the songs they present are like that. But I don't really like how the information is presented without context. For me, music is a really social thing. It's really connected to scene and history and responding to the world around you and location. And 
unless I click into these profiles, it's just kind of like, I have no idea whether this person is from now or 40 years ago. I don't know why they're on here. I don't know if this is something that's being pushed to me by a record label. And it kind of just turns me off a little bit. Yeah, that's kind of what streaming does, though. I mean, it kind of engages in like a temporal flattening of sorts. In the past, there used to be this notion of, oh, I I like listening to new music or I like listening to old music. And that sounds ridiculous, but it's the way people talked about listening to music. And I think for younger generations, especially now, it's just I like listening to music. Like, like I think a great example of this would be the character, uh, I think her name was Chloe, in the HBO series uh, Big Little Lies that just ended. You know, she's like this little girl who is making... She, like, soundtracks her parents' dinners with Otis Redding, and she's putting Alabama Shake songs on playlists to, like, soothe her parents' heartbreak sometimes. And, you know, I think everybody was like, you know, how does this little girl have s- such good taste beyond the obvious, well, it's a narrative device. But, you know, the reality is, like, taste used to be something that was provincial. It used to be something that, for better or for worse, I think largely for worse, was lorded over people, you know, if I'm being real, by people like us, uh, people who do this for a living. And now there's really no, uh, that avenue's been kind of closed off, or maybe it's just been blown out and opened up. Like, now anybody can, like, have the inside, quote-unquote, track on, you know, what's next and what's cool. Like, the effort has been kind of taken out of that, and it's really in the eye of beholder whether it's a good or bad thing. I think they're getting rid of taste provincialism can be seen as good. The only area where, I, where I'm kind of concerned about this, where I don't know if it's necessarily positive, is where it's just like, because music is devoid of all context, it just ultimately begins to sound more and more similar to other kinds of music. Hmm. Just because of the way that like it's all kind of thrown together in these playlists, kids who are coming up are just like listening to all of this like algorithmically selected music which like just like we pointed out with the lo-fi house thing things that are popular across wide swaths of people go to the top so it's like you just get this like lowest common denominator sound it's like a little bit of this a little bit of that and then it's like the chain smokers isn't even really like one trend that's like them using their tech bro skills combining a bunch of different trends into this like special sauce that appeals to everybody and it's just sort of like that seems like in some way a kind of scary result of this is that all music sounds increasingly comes together towards this like weird middle ground that doesn't have to do with any place or person or trend or movement or anything like that. All of those things that were discussed by people like us and is instead just this sort of, like I said before, this utility, just this stream, this endless, no beginning, no conclusion, just like listening experience that makes you feel good, but you can't identify yourself with it. I'm wondering if maybe our fascination with this topic and anxiety over these issues has to do with our anxiety as music journalists of, you know, are our jobs going to become automated? That's kind of how I feel about it. I mean, I feel I think about it less from like my job perspective, but more like I worry for future generations for a million reasons. But I'm thinking like, you know, what is the generation of music listeners going to look like in 10 years, you know? is everything going to be so automated that people are just going to have, I mean, 10 years, five years, going to have, people won't have any way or just knowledge to find what they love. And Larry brought up a good point about making 
mixtapes and the girl and Big Little Lies. And, you know, I was kind of like that girl for my family. And I, I still am growing up. I mean, I've always introduced people in my family to a lot of music. And it was always kind of about the chase for me and just digging and going deeper and just experimenting. And, you know, what is that going to look like when everything is automated? Are you going to be like telling your mom to go on her Discover playlist or copying, you know, YouTube-related video hot links. I mean, it worries me. But in the end, if people are listening to music that makes them happy, you know, I'm happy. My question is, who's going to be the first ever professional curation algorithm critic? Who? On next week's episode. You've been listening to The Thump Podcast, a production of Vice Media and Thump. I wanted to shout out Tim Barnes, who engineers and edits the Thump podcast, and you can find him on Twitter at TimBarnes451. If you'd like to read some of the stories we've been talking about, please log on to our website, thump.vice.com. You can also follow us on social media over at twitter.com slash thumpthump or facebook.com slash thumpthump. Guys, where can people follow your work? I'm on Twitter at Ezra underscore Mark. And I'm on Twitter at L-F-I-T-Z-M-A-U-R-I-C-E. I I usually shout out my Twitter. I'm going with SoundCloud today. Uh, Wigwam Beats. Is that your production, Elias? You'll see some of my mixes on there, my reposts, my mixtapes. Check it out, fam. Cool. And I'm on Twitter at AdHocEmily. If you like what you've heard, please rate and subscribe on iTunes. Ratings help, but word of mouth is the only way that we get this out there. Have a good one. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.